You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Utopia 
by Robert H. Williams, and this will be the last part. This may go a little long, and I I want to uh, tell you a little bit about Robert H. Williams. And again, this book was written, and it's an important book. There, I think there's a lot of important information in here. Uh, this book was published sometime after 1956. Robert H. Williams was a native of West Texas, a son of a Baptist minister. He was a lecturer, a news analyst, and authority on subversive movements. He was a contributor to Encyclopedia Britannica's Ten Eventful Years, author of several booklets on communism, Zionism, and Americanism, and a publisher of a monthly newsletter, the Williams Intelligence Summary. He was an Air Force intelligence officer until he was fired for opposing the appointment by President Truman of Mrs. Anna M. Rosenberg as Assistant Secretary of Defense. Thereafter, he was targeted by the ADL and Benai Brith. I want to say that it is obvious throughout this reading that Mr. Williams is a Christian, and to him it seems to go hand in glove with patriotism, which I think was the desired effect. I will comment when I deem it necessary uh, as uh, Christianity uh, or Christ insanity things pop up, but otherwise I will present this book as it was written. I also want to say that uh, I'm working on some other shows that should be very interesting. Next week, uh, next Monday, the 23rd of March, two days after the spring solstice, uh, I will be doing a show on Austera and the spring solstice. And uh, I'm also planning a show on uh, liberation theology uh, and uh, some other things. So we'll see how it goes. But anyway, so I will start where I ended last week. And I'm uh, beginning on page 33 and the second paragraph. From earlier passages, notably the obligation of Jew to deal justly with Jew but the absence of any such requirement in the utopia that the Jew deal in like manner with the non-Jew, we must suppose that though Israel will give us the Torah, Israel will not also give us the Talmud, which apparently is to remain the rule and guide of the Jews. Thus there will continue to be the double standard of ethics and morality, which has caused kings and priests and masses of aroused Christians at various times for the past thousand years, to burn all available copies of the Talmud trying to stamp out Jewish subversion. Again, when I'm quoting, I'm reading from the text, or he is quoting the text of the Jewish Utopia. And again, I should say that on the cover of this book, uh, the announcement of what this book is about uh, also is in the notes, uh, in, on the show notes, is the, the Jewish Utopia was discovered by the author in an unlisted Jewish collection in the library of the University of Texas. It is the authentic and complete plan of the Zionists for world domination. It pictures the ultimate new social order which the Zionists hope to establish after they have used communism, democracy, and the Third World War to gain their ends. The ultimate world order is an analysis of the Jewish Utopia with photographs and excerpts from the original text. So, as I'm quoting, these uh, areas are from the Jewish Utopia. Quote, Such will then be the perfect, ideal nation. The spiritual fire of Israel will devour the wicked nations, the nations which remain patriotic and nationalist. 
the following biblical verse will then be fulfilled. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that the name of the Lord is called upon thee, and they shall be afraid of thee. End quote. Will the Jews and their allies destroy the non-Israelic peoples, the, quote, unrighteous, end quote, by violence, or will the destruction be by indirect methods? Quote, when they discourse about the victory of the righteous over the wicked, the Jewish sources rarely imply the idea of revenge on the part of the upright and the just. The wicked are to be eliminated from the scene merely because the destiny of humanity is to be guided and controlled by a new army. The army of the righteous will assume the responsibilities of the new state of the affairs of mankind, end quote. The use of the word revenge above reminds us that the, quote, unrighteous, end quote, the, quote, wicked, end quote, and the, quote, unjust, end quote, are so judged because they refuse to embrace the Israelic order. They are judged righteous or wicked by this standard only. Revenge for what? For not accepting the Jewish movement? Here again is the implication that we do them injury, at least mental injury. We persecute them if we resist their revolution. The Jews came into our midst of their own volition. We opened our gates to them. Certain of their numbers set about to destroy us. We who resist are unrighteous and wicked. We must not defend ourselves. If we do, we are anti-Semitic, and the revolutionaries or their agents will take revenge. Do our Jewish neighbors and the Jews who seem happy to do business with us join Mr. Higger in this vicious design toward us? I can't believe it. It is hard to believe. The rank and file among the Jews know that in the supporting Zionism and its liberal program, they are supporting this murder incorporated against their unoffending neighbors. Jerusalem is to be the source of the law, and that means, of course, the headquarters of the world police. Quote, the prophecy of Isaiah will thus be fulfilled, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, will thus become the metropolis of the whole world, and the nations will walk at her spiritual light. End quote. Thus is the political world power state draped in robes of religion. The nations, as political powers, must disappear, leaving only, quote, cultural groups, end quote, possibly somewhat along the geographical lines of the politically and racially extinct nations. Quote, with the advent of the Messiah, who will usher in the ideal era, all the national ensigns and laws, which are barriers to genuine international peace, brotherhood, and the happiness of mankind, will gradually disappear, end quote. Notice the word gradually. It will take some time, even after Armageddon. The world will be one open city, free for intercourse of trade, migration, and education. The whole earth will be for the whole human race. End quote. That is, for those who do not defend their own nation, race, culture, family, religion, and independence. Here plainly enough is the Zionist plan for the United Nations world. Christianity, with an asterisk, and this is a larger section, so I'm going to read that section. 
There is abundant evidence that both the communists and the Zionists are deliberately selecting smart, young revolutionaries and sending them to Protestant theological schools, whence being far above the average ministerial students in intelligence and being skillfully trained and no doubt aided by their fellow infiltrators, might be expected to rise rapidly to positions of power in the hierarchy of the various denominations. Evidently, agents also are infiltrating the Catholic Church. The prominent Zionist leader of Australia, A.L. Patkin, a native of Russia, who helped to build the Red Revolution in his origins of the Russian Jewish labor movement, not only showed that all the foremost leadership of the Bolshevik Revolution was Jewish, but also that many young Jews worked into the Christian churches in Russia to promote the subversion. Quote, The Jewish youth some formally converted to Christianity, worked underground under assumed names, now as teachers, now as vagabond preachers, end quote. In Spain in the 14th and 15th century, Jews so thoroughly infiltrated the Catholic Church as to take it over almost completely. Isabella, during her 20-year struggle against subversion, had Jewish father confessors, as well as finance ministers, and even the cardinal was Jewish. In the past 30 years, the communists, by sworn testimony of ex-communists, have made great headway infiltrating the Protestant pulpits, and now we see many ministers who look Jewish and who preach the, quote, social gospel, end quote, of racial suicide. Now, evidently, these agents have risen to the top in the National Council, which was formerly the Federal Council of Churches of Christ. For that body, which claims to represent about three-fourths of all Protestants in America, including the big, quote, old line, end quote, denominations, has reached an agreement with the American Jewish Committee, whereby that Jewish nationalist power machine supplies a stream of, quote, educational, end quote, films and literature to these Christian denominations, works with the National Council staff in preparing Sunday school and church literature, and has the privilege of censoring any other NCCC, quote, Christian, end quote, literature. This is not hearsay. The American Jewish Committee told about it in detail in its thick, quote, American Jewish Committee budget, 1953, end quote. While the utopia cherished by the Talmudic Jews is to be to a considerable degree, socialist in economy. Some private ownership will be allowed, for the author makes reference to it. He says property cannot be bequeathed to heirs. The confiscation of property from the heirs is socialistic. The Jewish revolutionary leaders proclaim to their people that socialism, as also their concept of democracy, the kind found in Soviet Russia, is a Jewish invention and there's an asterisk. So, Jewish encyclopedias and other authoritative writings prevent socialism in a friendly light or make outright claims to the Jewish authorship of the movement. For example, the small book Jew and Non-Jew, which rabbis handed to the Jewish, Jewish soldiers in the U.S. Armed Forces during the Second World War, published jointly by the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, 
and the Central Conference of American Rabbis states, quote, It cannot be without its meaning that the Jew has played a leading role in the great modern industrial movements. Socialism was originated by Jews, and today Jews play a leading role in its spread and interpretation. I want to say about socialism that even though this uh, man is an intelligence agent uh, during this time, and this is the late 50s, uh, socialism is the basis of any uh, organized society, and uh, it is not necessarily an evil thing. It, uh, it can be. It can be good, bad, or it can be indifferent, depending on who wields the power over the people. That's my take on it. Back to the text. Every sizable socialist organization and movement today is of Jewish origin and or under Jewish management. Evidently, socialism, like its twin communism, is largely to be a temporary vehicle, a vehicle for destruction of the races and nations and conquest of private property. For in the utopia after the Jewish machine gets the power, its leaders will scorn the doctrine of equality which they now so diligently spread among us. Quote, there will be seven groups of righteous classified according to seven grades of light, namely the light of the sun, moon, heaven, stars, lightnings, lilies, and of the candlestick in the sanctuary, end quote. And again, these sevens, that's their magic number. So again, we see the Jewish revolutionaries playing a double game with us, secretly planning for an ultimate seven strata, aristocracy, while spreading socialism among us, evidently to induce us to let the government take all our property away and own us outright. Because if the Jews are the missionaries of any new movement, such as socialism, naturally they may expect to dominate it if it takes over the government. They then will use the socialist government as their vehicle for conquest of men and materials. Similarly, in preaching brotherhood and equality among us, their purpose must be that of making us forsake the pride which preserved our ancestors for ages so that we will accept and soon breed downward among the indolent dark races and the lazy, unambitious, stupid elements of our own race. Why not, since all of us are, quote, equal, end quote. This indoctrination is pure communism, it is spread by both the communists and the Zionists. It is offered as a Christian doctrine. The difference is that the communists believe it, while the Zionists show that they are spreading it only for non-Jewish consumption. They quicken the, quote, race, end quote, pride of their own people to a fanatical degree by their own propaganda, attacking all op opponents as anti-Semites. And by this clever, double-faced propaganda device, they keep most of the Jews scared and herded into their camp for, quote, protection, end quote. Protection, which would not at all be needed in a world of tolerant, unsuspecting Gentiles, but for the fact that the Jewish revolution becomes so violent, its leaders finally become identified, thus frightening and angering the alert Gentiles and causing quote, anti-Semitism, end quote. Western people can hardly conceive of such racial and cultist fanaticism. 
if a group of Germans or Spanish or Anglo-Saxons or Swedes said such an egotistical thing about their own kind or hinted that God was going to make their people the ideal or holy people of the earth, the Jewish propagandists would flood America with movies from Hollywood, broadcasts by radio and television and newspaper stories about the racial bigots, inciting us to make war on them as, quote, fascists, end quote. We have already seen glimpses of the, quote, ideal Israel, end quote, in all its holiness, its bayoneting of helpless Arab women and children, and the constant threat of aggression over neighbors in the Near East. The ideal and holy nature of Jewish power mongers likewise has been demonstrated in revolution after revolution among our ancestors for over 2,000 years. The Jewish-inspired socialistic international revolution, such as the French Revolution, and in our time the communist or Bolshevik revolutions, have reddened much soil with the blood of Gentiles. And there's an asterisk. Jewish literature is replete with reports showing how their leaders inspired revolutions, revolutions which undermined the stability and character of Western nations and racial elements from Rome down to the current climactic world revolution. The Jewish author Marcus Eli Ravage in two articles in the January and February 1928 issues of the Century magazine summarized the Jewish revolutionary role in non-Jewish countries. Quote, You have not begun to appreciate the real depth of our guilt. We are intruders. We are disturbers. We are subverters. We have taken your natural world, your ideals, your destiny, and played havoc with them. We have been at the bottom, not merely, of your latest great war, which was the First World War, but of nearly all your wars, not only of the Russian communist, but of every other major revolution in your history. We have brought discord and confusion and frustration into your personal and public life. We are still doing it. No one can tell how long we shall go on doing it. End quote. Ravage relates how his ancestors hating the Roman government and soldiers, which had burned Jerusalem in an effort to stop Jewish subversion or subversive activities, infiltrated the early Christian movement, emphasizing the doctrine, and he says infiltrated the early Christian movement. The early Christian movement was designed by the Jews. So he's a little off and again holding a a strong Christian position in his writing. So Anyway, Christian movement emphasizing the doctrine which said, quote, turn the other cheek, end quote, to an enemy. And the hate the rich doctrine, that a rich man cannot enter the kingdom of heaven to soften the Roman armies and undermine the great Roman civilization. Ravage does not say the Jewish revolutionaries, quote, infiltrated, end quote, Christianity. It is his thesis that they deliberately invented it and spread it among the Gentiles to make them soften and humble and debase themselves and thus, in effect, commit national and racial suicide. And that is the position, and that is what was done. And Ravage the Jew was stating fact, although the author doesn't want to hear it that way. It is a fact that the early use or misuse of Christianity did spread the socialist doctrine of equality 
and induced hardy, strong Roman individuals to fraternize with and mix their blood with that of indolent, intellectually limited Negroes who had been brought into Rome by millions as slaves. Just as today many fanatical ministers are similarly misinterpreting Christianity, promoting race suicide. Continuing with the text, we have already stated that all the wealth of the world is to be at the disposal of the rulers of Israel. Quote, the city of Jerusalem will possess most of the gold and precious stones of the world, the equal distribution of private property and other necessities of life will automatically depreciate the importance of gold and other luxuries. End quote. Who is to divide up the property? Obviously, that authority will be all-powerful, ruling every life. In Western countries, the ideal always obtained that the parent was responsible for the education of his children. It was the parent's right and responsibility to say whether or not his children should be educated and in what way and in what the education should consist. The influence of Jewish socialism, which swept Germany in the 19th and 20th centuries, threw the control of education into the hands of the state, largely replacing parentally controlled private education with state-controlled public education. The same Jewish socialism took root in America and has now all but completed the transfer of authority and responsibility for education from the parent to the state. This transfer is throwing power into the hands of the Jewish machine since the Jewish-inspired, quote, liberal, end quote, movement dominates it. And this liberal-dominated public education system is wiping out any knowledge of our traditions, the struggles of our fathers and their fathers to regain freedom of the individual, sweeping away our anchorage, leaving our children prime for indoctrination with Jewish liberalism and racial integration. And I have to give this man credit. He saw the racial integration in the late 50s, and uh, I think that's, that's a lot sooner than most people saw it. The author makes clear that it is the Jewish power seated in Jerusalem, headed by a descendant of the house of David, the Holy One, an absolute dictator which is to divide up the property, ceding it only to favorites. Quote, For to the righteous and upright will belong all the wealth, treasures, industrial gains, and all the other resources of the world. To the unrighteous, will belong nothing, end quote. While property is not to be passed on from father to son, still there will be some private property, as stated heretofore. And since various kinds of land are to be included so as to produce a variety of farm products, and since only, quote, the righteous, end quote, are to hold property, we may hazard a guess that this points towards something like Jewish-owned feudal estates. The Jewish machine made, quote, war, end quote, on the feudal estates of Europe and later on the landed aristocracy, precipitating the bloody French Revolution and subsequent communist-type class revolutions, 
which destroyed the last vestiges of the landed estates and many of the people who had built them. The landed estates had been founded by the finest of the Teutonic and Celtic tribesmen, the leaders of the red-headed Celts, Goths, and Norse Vikings, the fair Angles and Saxons, giant men described by historians as men of great stature, personal dignity, dogged honesty, and general leadership. It was this mighty racial leadership, the foundation of this age of civilization, which had to be wiped out of the nationalistic, if the nationalistic Jews were to march on. The propagandists of Jewish revolutions ever have disguised their real aims. They shape their revolutions along class and religious lines. But the result is race warfare, since it is by and large the remnants of the old northern blood and character, even though mixed with other white elements which constitute the, quote, upper class, end quote. The men of ability and ambition naturally become the upper class, and in Europe and the Americas, these men are for the most part of Anglo-Saxon and closely related stock. The Jewish strategists, apparently considering themselves to be a racial unit, have always been too smart to use the word race, except in writing strictly for their own kind. Mr. Higger, for instance, speaks of his people as a race. Their appeal, analyzed, is exactly a racial appeal, but outnumbered a hundred to one by people of other races, they would be foolish to launch openly on a race war. Rather, they must condemn as bigotry any thought of race, while paradoxically quickening the, quote, race, end quote, or tribal pride of their own people by constant talk of race bigotry and, quote, anti-Semitism, end quote, among people who oppose their program. Notice how this cunning propaganda works. It makes the Gentiles, the whites, ashamed to stand up for their survival, fearing to be called a scare name, but it makes the Jews feel that they are being attacked racially and thus it quickens their, quote, race pride. The hint that land will be apportioned to, quote, the righteous, end quote, in sizable estates and the all-powerful position of the Jewish leaders in the utopian era apparently mean that the Jewish planners hope to completely supplant the masters of the old feudal estates. Thus will they at last, if they succeed, bring the revolution full circle. We find some support for this belief or surmise in the economic process in the communist countries. The property was taken away from the Gentiles. Only a few rich Jews owned property, especially land in old Russia and Poland. By the Jewish communist dictatorship and by the 1930s and 40s, certain favored Jews had been granted fabulous state franchises in the Red Empire. Mrs. Kaprovskaya, wife of Molotov, sister of the Jewish importer, Sam, quote, Karp, end quote, of Bridgeport, Connecticut, was given the perfume and cosmetics concession, supposedly for the entire Soviet Union. The then Jewish deputy premier, Lazar Kaganovich, 
was put in charge of all the great industrial centers of Gentile slave labor, quite a sizable feudal estate. The Jewish financier Jacob Ashberg, former affiliate of the Rothschild and Warburg banking houses operating at the Naya Banken in Sweden, handled the finances for the Reds, went to Russia a few weeks after the Bolshevik seizure of power in 1917, and ever since has been the dictator of Soviet finance, and there's an asterisk. This is really dim printing. I, it didn't print right in this book, so my eyes are straining. The London Evening Star, September 6, 1948, reported a visit by Ashberg to Switzerland quote, for secret meetings with Swiss government officials and banking executives. Diplomatic circles describe Mr. Ashberg as the Soviet banker, end quote, who advanced large sums to Lenin and Trotsky in 1917. At the time of the revolution, Mr. Ashberg gave Trotsky money to form and equip the first unit of the Red Army. A spokesman of the Soviet Legion in Bern said Mr. Ashberg's visit will be in private. He has property in Switzerland. The financial attaché of the Soviet legation described Mr. Ashberg as, quote, the most unusual man the Kremlin has ever sent to the West. He bears no official title, is attached to no government department, is not in the Soviet Foreign Service, and is not a member of the common form, end quote. Note that Ashberg, banker for the Communist Empire, was a private capitalist owning property in Switzerland. Major George Racy Jordan, in his book, From Major Jordan's Diaries, 1952, revealed that Ashberg, during the Second World War, sent a secret message by an extremely secret and important messenger to, quote, the very big boss, end quote, of the revolution in America, Senator Herbert H. Lehman, Jewish banker, for half a century, one of the ringleaders of the American Jewish Committee and also of the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith. We may well believe that banker Ashberg was, for a long time, and may still be, quote, the very big boss, end quote, of the Communist Revolution in the USSR. He is, without doubt, one of the foremost policy shapers of the highly secret self-constituted committee called the Communist Security System, CSS, which runs all communist governments and all communist parties. And that was a little new to me. I hadn't heard of him before. It always comes uh, at us as uh, as Schiff and uh, Kuhn Laub. So, continuing. The secret police, which actually constituted the power of or over the government, at all times was headed by a Jew up to the death or liquidation or disappearance of Beria. We may have no knowledge of the racial identity of, and I don't know if it's Beria or Beria, so I'll just, I should say Beria, I think that's right, the identity of Beria's successor, but the, quote, Sheehan document, end quote, entered into the congressional record by Representative Timothy P. Sheehan, August 5, 1957, indicates that there probably has been no change in power. 
the secret, hidden, self-constituted committee called the Communist Security System, CSS, still runs the government and the Communist Party from behind the scenes, and the officials seen by the public are only puppets. We know that the power of Bolshevism or Communism originally was completely Jewish. The Jewish inner clique could do as they pleased with the regime. During the Second World War, the regime had to make compromises to keep the whole populace of white Russia and the Ukraine from going over to the invading Germans. And now, anti-communism and anti-Semitism are forcing compromises and forcing the Hidden Committee to keep Jews out of conspicuous positions. Almost immediately after the communist conquest of Romania and Hungary, it became evident that a few Jewish Reds had divided up the spoils among themselves. Even the internationalist Time magazine, September 20, 1948, carried an article describing Bucharest as a city with the air of a pawn shop and told of the complete triumph of the dictator Jewess Anna Pauker, P-A-U-K-E-R. Quote, Anna Pauker lives in three great houses, moving almost every night because she fears assassins. One of her houses belonged to Prince Banarkovinu, one beloved to Nikola Malaksa, big industrialist and speculator, and one belonged to red-headed Magda Lupescu, ex-King Carol's mistress and now his wife. Anna replaced them all. The power has passed into her hands. She runs Romania. She is the leading communist in the band of states running from the Baltic to the Adriatic. Anna Pocker was born 1903 in Bucharest, where her father, Z.V. Rabinshon, was a Shoet, S-H-O-H-E-T, i.e. the man who kills animals in accordance with Jewish rules. So he was a butcher. Anna went to the Jewish school on Anton Pan Street. Through seven huge sovrums, S-O-V-R-O-M-S, or Soviet-Romanian combines, Russians almost completely controlled transport, oil, timber, banking, and everything else they can lay their hands on, even including Romania's tiny motion picture industry. A recent visitor described Bucharest as a city with the air of a pawn shop, end quote. Romania was Anna Pocker's feudal estate. Accusations in America that the Jews were the authors of communism seemed to have forced the revolutionaries to withdraw Anna and other Jewish dictators from public view and replace them with nondescript characters. If the plans of the Zionists for conquest of property and people seem fantastic, you haven't seen anything yet. They plan to upbreed and outbreed their race or tribe into one quite different from the present Jewish strain. Quote, a sturdy race of strong, healthy, tall, youthful, and handsome people will be raised, end quote. Quote, the Holy One thus said, 
In this era, some people are healthy and handsome, and others are not. But in the ideal era to come, all people will be handsome and praiseworthy. This will be in accordance with the prophecy of Isaiah. All that see them shall acknowledge them that they are the seed which the Lord hath blessed. The quotation from Isaiah indicates that the, quote, people, and quote, here referred to, means the Jewish people, or rather the chosen, quote, righteous, and quote, elements among the Jews. The most beautiful thing on earth is human beauty, and the Jewish tribal fanatics are not the only people who have wished their kind more beautiful. Such a wish is normal. Any who does not either consciously or unconsciously and instinctively hope each generation of his race and kin will be more beautiful physically and spiritually, more vigorous and gifted than the preceding generation, must be some sort of pervert. But to set out to make all the descendants of present-day Jews beautiful and healthy requires quite a bit of authority over the Jews. Any breeder of good livestock knows the process by which strains are improved. Kill off all the ugly and unhealthy individuals and breed up only the carefully selected strains. The Jewish planners will have to liquidate untold millions of their own people to stop the breeding of defective individuals and individuals not, quote, tall and handsome, end quote. All thinking persons, doubtless, would be sympathetic to a sane and humane upbreeding process for the Jews as well as for each and every race if the process could be done voluntarily and intelligently among the people themselves according to the laws of nature. Hundreds of writers, speakers, and scientists of our time have deplored the progressive degeneracy of the American stock and some governments in the past have undertaken to improve the stock of their people. Augustus Caesar tried it, with little success, by organizing colonies or settlements of selected families. Adolf Hitler tried it, after his strange fashion. See, and he doesn't like Hitler either, so he might piss me off. Notice a striking difference in the Gentile and the Jewish advocates of race improvement. The former group idealized the best types of their own race, whereas the latter group want to build a new Jewish race for, quote, tall, handsome, end quote, people are not Jewish, except as the Jews have taken in blood from other racial elements. The Jews traditionally are short in stature and never, so far as I have observed, have been described as a handsome people. Jews of recent centuries class themselves in two ethnic and linguistic groups, the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim. Webster's unabridged dictionary defines the Ashkenazim as, quote, the Jews of Middle and Northern Europe as opposed to the Sephardim or Jews of Spain and Portugal, end quote. Of Sephardim, the dictionary says, quote, Jews who are the descendants of the former Jews of Spain and Portugal. They are, as a rule, darker than the Ashkenazim or northern Jews. They are chiefly settled in North Africa, Greece, the Balkans, the Levant, Holland, England, and America. 
for many generations, the Sephardic Jews considered themselves so far superior to the Ashkenazim that they would rarely intermarry. They traced their culture and some blood to the Spain preceding Isabella's time before Isabella expelled most of the Jews to save Spain. But in the past two centuries, they have virtually wiped out the lines of distinction. The Ashkenazim in Northern Europe had taken in much German blood, while in Eastern Europe and Asia, they had for centuries absorbed blood from the Khazars and other dark, coarse, Asiatic, Mongol elements. Thus, there are in reality two divisions of Ashkenazim, though both speak Yiddish, a composite of German, Polish, Russian, and Hebrew using Hebrew characters. It might be said that the Mediterranean Jews also are divided in two, two almost distinct groups, the elements from Ethiopia and the Eastern Mediterranean, with dark skin, thick lips, nose curled downward, heavy lids, and kinky negroid hair, and those interbred with Southern and Western European stock. There are, of course, in small numbers, Chinese Jews, Japanese Jews, Philippine Jews, and so on. The Mediterranean Jews generally have lost leadership during the past century, while the more virile Germans have risen in finance, in science, in commerce, and in political influence. But towering above these in fanaticism, cold-blooded brutality, cunning, and political organizing are, quote, the Russian-Polish, end quote, Jews. Anna Rosenberg, and there's an asterisk, there is an abundant evidence that Mrs. Rosenberg was a communist. The former communist, Ralph de Solo, himself a Jewish, swore before a Senate committee that he had known her as such, and the December 8, 1942 issue of the then-official communist organ, New Masses, carried a pen drawing of her fully identifying her as, quote, New York Regional Director, War Manpower Commission, end quote, and with an article contributed by her to that red paper, copies of which still are to be found in some public libraries. Continuing with the text, Anna Rosenberg, Harry Truman's appointee as Assistant Secretary of Defense, has some of the features and characteristics of both the Ethiopian and the Russian-Polish Jews, heavy skin, coarse black hair, hooked nose, black or brown eyes with heavy oriental lids, coarse, crude, vulgar features, and a fierce fanaticism which knows no conscience but is utterly brutal. Generals who suffered humiliation under this small strumpet's tongue lashings say she was as foul-mouthed as any sailor. Bernard Baruch might be cited as one example of the quote, German, end quote, Jews. Standing six feet four inches, he obviously had a great deal of, quote, European, end quote, blood in his veins. He has the Jewish nose and a type of Jewish mouth, but by comparison with so many of the crude, almost hideous Mongol and Semitic Negroid Jews, he may well have been described as handsome in his younger days. Strange to say, his Nordic blood has not eliminated the Jewish temperament entirely, for his life has been steeped in secrecy, cunning, and intrigue. It was he who maneuvered to get Truman to appoint Anna Rosenberg. 
During the past two centuries, thousands of Jews have intermarried with the British aristocracy. For the most part, they retain the names of the once great Anglo-Saxon families. They hold the estates. They speak English with a British accent. They had developed a great deal of loyalty to Britain and almost forgot they were Jews until the war with Hitler subjugated them for Zionism. Many of these English Jews are fine individuals physically and intellectually. Many are three-fourths or more Anglo-Saxon. There are also many handsome French and Spanish Jews, though not very tall as a rule, and some of their women, like some of the English and German Jewesses, are quite attractive. Only by such interbreeding with other racial elements, with tall and handsome people, can the Zionists raise up a breed of, quote, tall, handsome, end quote, Jews for Israel. For, like begets like, you cannot breed up a line of racehorses from plow horses or mules. The genes of your ancestors determine whether or not you are to be tall and handsome. This strange adaptation of the racial ideals of another race is a tantalizing phenomena. It reminds me of the theory of some students of ethnology that, that the reason the Jewish propagandists hate and ridicule the, quote, pure Aryan, end quote, Anglo-Saxons and their northern Europeans is that they are jealous of the fair complexion and the refined features. Mr. Higger's Jewish utopia tends to confirm this theory. Reports, almost incredible, coming out of Israel to the effect that many of the children, unlike their mothers and fathers, are blondes, even with northern European features. An article by Adrian Crowley in the London Daily Telegraph of May 25, 1938, said, quote, Fair hair and blue eyes are so common in Zionists that not even the most blatant Anglo-Saxon can prove his identity, end quote. And sharply in the London Evening Standard of November 6, 1956, says of the Jewish couple in Israel, quote, She and her husband are dark-haired, but by the same strange alchemy that affects all Israel-born children, their baby son is fair-haired. Israel-born Israelis called Sabras, S-A-B-R-A-S, can be immediately spotted all over the country, They are bewilderingly blonde and big. If you saw them in Whitechapel, you would swear they were Swedes. End quote. Blue eyes and light hair come from the genes of only one race in the world, the northern or Nordic, from mostly around the Baltic. There are light brunette Nordic strains with fair skin, but no other race produces a strain with blue or gray or light hazel eyes and red, blonde, or light brown hair. Wherever you see these characteristics, you see evidence of Nordic ancestry. Whether Jew or African, Chinese or American, Italian or Spanish, the individual with these features is at least part Nordic. Whence comes the, quote, blonde blood, end quote, in Israel of this generation? A brief item in the California Jewish Voice of June 28, 1957, may be related to this question. Tel Aviv, JTA, for Jewish Telegraph Agency. Many children and teenagers brought to Israel recently have developed deep personal problems as a result of the sudden awareness that they are Jews, 
Moshe Cole, head of the youth, uh, Aleya, A-L-I-Y-A-H, movement, reported here, quote, Mr. Cole declared that some of the youngsters who did not know they were Jews until brought to Israel by the child rescue movement suffered psychological shock. For those who could not cope with this shock, the youth Ayala leaders continued individualized attention is provided in youth Ayala centers, end quote. Who are these children? Could they have been German and Scandinavian and perhaps British war orphans taken over by Jewish agents during and immediately after the war? Could some of them have been, quote, rescued, end quote, from Dresden while we under Jewish incitation were bombing the women and children of that open center of culture during the Second World War? There are only two ways by which parents, quote, homogeneous for dark hair and eyes, quote, could acquire blonde children by adoption or by artificial insemination. The newspaper reports of fair Jewish children in Israel are true, and I have seen numerous such reports. Then these children are adopted or are from artificial insemination, unless there were blonde fathers who are not the supposed fathers. It is not uncommon practice in our time for a mother to bear a child from mere sperm, male sperm artificially planted in the womb. It now appears that both the male sperm and the female egg probably can be successfully planted in the womb. If so, a Jewish or a Negro woman could give birth to a blonde, quote, pure Aryan, end quote, child, which would not be related to her and have not a drop of her, quote, blood, end quote, in its veins. What a thought. We can only wonder about this process which seems related to Mr. Higger's Book of Wonders. And I didn't say that because because I know they're doing it, but I'm just an Aryan child being born to a, a nigger. It's really creepy. So anyway, Mr. Higger says the Jews will have many children. This craving is emphasized frequently in his utopia. A recent news dispatch says the birth rate of Israel now is higher than that of India. While the racial plan for the Jews is of importance to us in view of the Zionist strength and the fanatical intent to accomplish the Zionist aims, the plan is even more important to most of the Jews of this and other countries, including Israel, for apparently few of them will be chosen. Certainly, if we analyze this plan correctly, the millions of Jews who are not tall and handsome, who are not vigorous and well-formed, or who do not otherwise measure up to the master race requirements, will have no place in the Zionist world. They will not be invited to Israel. They will not be permitted to have children, or at least not grandchildren. They will be eliminated no less than those Gentiles who prefer to retain their independence, their culture, and their race. The Jews now in Israel, or most of them, evidently are not to be the chosen ones. I suppose, in fact, that they are to be used as cannon fodder, that they are to be slaughtered so the Zionist machine can cry persecution and rally us stupid Anglo-Saxons to fight the enemies of the Zionists, our Arab friends, 
clearing the land for Jewish conquest. Observe the contradictory position in which the propaganda machine has put the Anglo-Saxon who loves his own race and wants it to survive and do well. The Zionists who want to destroy all but their own have managed to put the onus of scare names on the man who loves the separate races. He is a bigot, a race hater, a white supremacist, a white chauvinist, an anti-Semite, and so on. It is not uncommon to hear the question, is Israel bent on territorial expansion? The answer can be found in many places. Time Magazine, August 16, 1948, page 25, quoted David Ben-Gurion, Israeli premier, as saying, quote, We would not have taken on this Arab war merely for the purpose of enjoying this tiny state. There have been only two great peoples, the ancient Greeks and the Jews. Maybe when the present process is finished, we too will degenerate, but I see no sign of degeneracy at present. Ben-Gurion further indulged himself in his vision of a Jewish master race. Quote, we had a message to give the world, but the message was cut off in the middle. In time, there will be millions of us becoming stronger and stronger, and we will complete the message. End quote. Professor Higger told us, even more specifically, that Israel would expand. Quote, I will open rivers on the high hills and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. The boundaries of the land will be enlarged and widened and its immediate spiritual, ethical, and moral influence on the neighboring countries will be evident and very great. End quote. If Israel continues its militant march, its people will rebuild Jerusalem into a fabulous glittering city, as previously described. Quote, the rebuilding of that city is a part of the plan of the ideal country, Zion. Jerusalem will be the capital of Zion, end quote. Ben-Gurion, daring, arrogant premier of Israel, knew his Zionist program when he moved the capital of Israel from Tel Aviv to fabled Jerusalem in defiance of the timid, spineless restraints of the Western nations. Why should Ben-Gurion fear the wrath of Harry Truman, the total politician? Not a finger was lifted to restrain the rugged Zionist enemy of Western nations and races, though he provoked our Arab allies almost to the point of war, which might then, and may yet, atomize the world. Mr. Higger's dream of world peace and constant, quote, propaganda for peace, end quote, by the Zionists, like the communists, whose basic literature always calls for an ultimate war to destroy the free world, are not to be taken seriously in view of his revelation of the plan to deliberately bring about the mighty Armageddon, a war to make the world destroy itself. The study of the racial history of Europe indicates that there would have been few wars, probably no major wars, but for the organizing of the Jewish peace propagandists to make the non-Jews grind themselves to bits. Supposition is permissible that the Jewish strategists want peace after they subjugate all opposition and potential opposition. The question is, whose peace or whose wars are we to, quote, enjoy, end quote? What specifically is or are the requirements of joining the righteous? What must you do to be saved by the Zionist standards? 
What is the Israelitic or Zionist program we must embrace? Everywhere, the author makes the answer clear. We must embrace world brotherhood and internationalism. And we must hate and oppose the, quote, anti-Semites, end quote. These are the requirements for the nations. They are also the requirements for individuals, as he repeatedly makes clear. For instance, quote, the ideal Jerusalem, the capital of the ideal Zion, headed by the ideal house of David, will have her foundation rooted in universal brotherhood, end quote. Your country will be called unrighteous and will be destroyed if it opposes Israel and or if it does not embrace the above-mentioned universal brotherhood. Quote, The righteous nations, as typified in the traditional Esau, E-S-A-U, will not share in the ideal era. Their rule will be destroyed and will disappear from the earth before the ushering in of the millennium. Their unrighteous will be characterized by corrupt governments and by their oppressions of Israel. End quote. It is, quote, ideal, end quote, for the Jewish utopians to take over all the wealth of the world. Notice that it is unrighteous and wicked, or anti-Semitic, to oppose Israel, but the entire plan of the Jewish utopia is a plan of oppression to Gentiles, a plot to subjugate them or wipe them out. Thus, the present Zionist and Communist programs preaching brotherhood, racial integration, socialism, UNESCO, the Genocide Pact, the so-called Covenant of Human Rights, the glorification of the United Nations, the constant undermining and ridiculing and belittling of patriotic nationalism among non-Jews, the swift and violent attacks on any non-Jews who express their pride in their race, the coercive, quote, fair employment practices, end quote, laws, or FEPC, quote, unquote, forcing the white man to employ persons of the various races in his community, though white men may go jobless. The cry of anti-Semitism, the world giveaway program of our money to uplift all the other races at the expense of our children and grandchildren, who are thus saddled with fantastic debts, all these propaganda and organizational drives identify themselves as part of the program of Jewish nationalism or Zionism, all moving us towards the goal of the, quote, Jewish utopia. Now that we have seen the full plan, the goal of, quote, world brotherhood, and quote, under the Jewish dictatorship, we need not ask who originated the above-mentioned propaganda and organizational drives which sweep and shake our country like a storm wind, Jewish organizations and newspapers make no secret that Jews inspired all these internationalist movements, but we no longer need to be told for the Jewish fingerprint is on them. Think of the thousands of local, national, and international, quote, brotherhood, end quote, organizations which have been put together in our time, and think of their influence in softening and intimidating our people. In many of our schools, especially public schools, Mental exertion and intelligence have been largely subordinated to, quote, brotherhood, end quote, quote, social adjustment, end quote, and an asterisk. Social adjustment, meaning largely racial adjustment. 
the acceptance of all the dark races in our social life in utter disregard of our own racial and family feature, our teachers, oblivious to and unaware of the Jewish power machine, have adopted its program regarding the intelligence and achievements level to which our public schools have dropped. The Ladies Home Journal of June 1957, page 4, carried the following letter from the holder of a master's degree from an American state university. Dear editors, by far the brightest highlight of our stay in England has been the boys' school. Jay, who is 11, has been attending a, quote, public, end quote, school, not of the same rank as Eton or Winchester, but still quite good. They begin Latin and French and what seems to me to be higher mathematics at age nine. I have been somewhat reluctant to criticize the public schools in the United States, chiefly because I felt it reflected on the teachers, and most of them should have many stars on their crowns. But the fact is that standards throughout the public school system in the United States have dropped to the point where even mediocre accomplishments seem excellent. Obviously, many, many boys can be taught the traditional, quote, hard, end quote, subjects, languages, math, and science, at an age far younger than high school. Indeed, 10 is about where they should start. I know it is not saying much for me, but I have visited the scholarship form, 13-year-olds who have a chance to win a scholarship at a public school, and they were doing work in math and language superior to that for which I was awarded a master's degree in the American State University. Signed, Glenn White. The master strategists must know what they are doing to us. They must know that never in history have white and dark peoples mixed socially, that they did not presently interbreed and never has such interbreeding reached advanced degrees, that it did not result in chaos and general degeneracy with utter moral abandon and crime rampant. I do not pretend to be wise enough to explain all the reasons why this is so. I do know that it is so. One obvious explanation, at least, in part, as long as a racial element or tribe, white, black, red, yellow, or brown, lives in homogenous relationship, having its own culture and conscience, obligations of tribal or racial citizenship, the accompanying pride and the training in the ancestral code of conduct maintains moral stability. When the tribe or race breeds out with others, it loses the pride, the consciousness, the sense of obligation. Even the Jews, despite their rigid code, interbreed quite a bit in contact with other racial elements, but their interbreeding is nearly always upward. Our outbreeding can only be downward. The Jews stand to gain, and we stand to lose. Another reason for racial degeneracy and the decline of white civilization wherever the white race progressively interbreeds with the dark is the much lower level of moral requirements and the lower level of energy and constructive imagination among the dark elements. As for crime, the police reports in all our big cities show a fantastic difference, and the FBI had the courage to publish a pamphlet, Uniform Crime Reports for the United States, 
issued by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, United States Department of Justice, Washington, D.C., Volume 23, Number 2, Annual Bulletin 1952, showing an analysis of the principal crimes in our cities by racial elements under the caption, quote, race, end quote, on page 117. This bulletin, available at the government printing office, reads, Table 46, Arrests by Race, 1952, 232 cities over populations of 25,000. The chart shows that of 1,288 persons arrested that year for, quote, murder and non-negligent manslaughter, end quote, 444 were white, 829 Negro, and of 6,554 arrests for robbery, 3,617 were white, 2,890 Negro. Of 11,882 arrests for aggravated assault, 4,270 were white, 7,555 Negro. Jews were not separated from other whites, that's in parentheses. Of the 3,103 arrests for violations of narcotics and drugs, 1,635 were white, 1,447 Negro. To get a proper perspective of the relative crime, bear in mind that the whites outnumbered the blacks by 8 or 9 to 1 in total population. Thus, in the total population under consideration, there were, on the basis of 10%, only about 2,300,000 Negroes and about 18 million to 19 million whites. This means that for murder, etc., one white person out of about 40,000 was arrested that year, whereas about one Negro was arrested out of every 3,000, about 13 times as high as a ratio among Negroes as among whites. It is only 2 or 3%, even of the Nordics, who furnish leadership. We cannot afford further to depreciate our racial ideals and stock by downbreeding. When is the utopia to be established? Do the Zionist planners expect to bring about the commercial and political fulfillment of their interpretation of the prophecies when they call God's promises to the Jews in our lifetime? What is the timetable of these peace lovers for bringing about the final war? We find many partial answers in the Jewish utopia, many milestones by which we can at least hazard some guesses. Obviously, the setting up of a Jewish state in Palestine was a milestone. The Zionists did that in 1948, without God, but with the help of Harry Truman and the Soviet Union. Israel is being developed and beautified, with foreign capital, of course, the papers in August 1957 announced plans for building a $500 million port in Ashdod. The will of one of the British Rothschilds leaves fabulous millions to help erect and beautify a capital building and perhaps museums and the like. Plans are proceeding for development of irrigation. Israel is developing some atomic plants, quote, for peaceful purposes, end quote, of course, and some other industry with secrets taken quite openly from American industry and laboratories, as, for instance, through the information-gathering agency normally called an espionage net, known as Technion, 
T-E-C-H-N-I-O-N, which operates in universities and industrial establishments. That's a new one, Technion. I think that's how you say it. The United Nations has been established and the Congress of the United States officially authorized the flying of the United Nations flag above Old Glory on the UN building. Thus begins and grows the nucleus for the world police force and the UN is purely a Jewish invention. The Muslim, M-O-S-L-E-M, world of some 300 million people has largely been shifted away from us The Zionist Jews have done a clever job in this maneuver, taking land away from the Arabs, bayoneting their women and children, thus making the whole Muslim world, with the possible exception of Pakistan, hate us for backing the Jews. We might well say that this milestone has been erected, for it now awaits only an incident to set off Armageddon. Israel can attack Egypt and possibly set off the war or the Jews who dominate or vastly influence the Soviet dictatorship from within through the hidden secret power circle called the Communist Security System, CSS, perhaps can order or induce the communist government to attack or cause some Arab country to attack Israel whenever the Jewish strategists are ready. They will not do so till they are sure the Zionists in the West can induce the President of the United States and the British government to support Israel. Comparing plans and objectives revealed in the Jewish utopia with the present world situation, we can arrive at a rather clear picture of the future war and even see which countries are to be wiped out as wicked and unrighteous if the Zionist plan succeeds. We can at least see what the Zionists are trying to bring to pass. Since Israel must expand and since it can expand only at the expense of the Arabs, the Israelitic group must destroy the Arab state. Already the Arabs in their Muslim sympathizers are vilified in the Jewish press and in planted stories in the general press as, quote, anti-Semitic, and quote, though the Arabs themselves are Semites. The Muslims are wicked and unrighteous, though all they have done to become unrighteous is to oppose the Jewish invasion of their lands. Without a frightful crisis, how can they and their liberal tools stampede us into surrendering our freedom. The Russian people, the Ukrainians, and the overwhelming majority of Eastern Europeans are anti-Semitic in the sense that they resent the bloody Jewish-inspired terror that gripped them under the communist regime. But the communist governments, on the other hand, have been overwhelmingly Jewish or pro-Jewish, so much so that all of these red governments incorporated in their constitutions specific prohibitions against, quote, anti-Semitism, end quote, the only countries in the world which singled out the Jews for this special favor. Our sons must fight to save the persecuted Jew and thus make every American or Englishman afraid to criticize any Jewish individual or machine, however subversive for fear, he will be smeared. The Zionist press in the West is so powerful The newspaper publishers so fearful of losing Jewish department store and other advertising, and elected officials so cowed by any thought of being called anti-Semitic that when some patriot is smeared in the propaganda releases as anti-Semitic, hardly anyone has the character to stand up for him. 
the silly little scare word anti-Semitic has made us a generation of cowards. This one little word is conquering the world. Given another world war to save the, quote, persecuted, end quote, Jews and our children will be doomed to subjugation and probably enslavement simply because their fathers and mothers had not the foresight or character to fight to save them. Whenever the public began to talk about the fact that so many communist spies and communist fronters were Jewish, the Soviet government always officially came to the rescue of the Jews in the West by holding a big public trial of some Jewish official or officials. The charge was always treason or disloyalty to the communist order, exclamation point. Just right to make the students of history in the West look ridiculous when they tried to warn their neighbors that communism was a Jewish invention. The trials did not necessarily prove that Jews still had the upper hand in the invisible Soviet government, the communist secret security system, for it may well be that Zionist agents could get the particular Jewish officials to spy for Zionism, then betray them to the communist government and thus bring about the public trial with our stupid liberal newspaper correspondents and the Zionist press and infiltrators into wire services almost always represented to the American public as anti-Semitic. Fantastic, certainly, but indisputable. Facts cannot be denied. The Zionists, no doubt, can produce such incidents get some Jews indicted and tried, and picture the Moscow regime as officially anti-Semitic. If the enslaved people of Russia come to believe their communist slave masters have thrown off the Jewish yoke and are anti-Semitic, they will fight for the regime. Doesn't this sound prophetic? I mean, isn't this where we are? If the indoctrinated, tolerant Anglo-Saxons think the Red Regime is anti-Semitic, he is apt to fight against it. Thus, the Zionists can make the East and the West fight a desperate war, each side actually fighting against its own future welfare. And assuredly, the Zionists can maneuver in the Middle East to steer the war to cause thousands of Israelis to be killed, and it does not take many to give the Zionist propaganda machine in America a chance to go into hysterics over persecution of their people by anti-Semites, and politicians who have been reelected may not dare try to get the facts to the American people to keep us out of the planned war. These politicians, in fact, may not at all understand the game, for few of them seem to have the courage to glance behind the Zionist curtain, even in the dark, to see what goes on there. At the risk of making this picture even more fantastic, I am forced to point out the opportunities such a war will or would offer the Zionist, quote, idealists, end quote, to help purify their tribe. It has been evident for some years that the Zionist redistributors of their people through HIAS, or the Hebrew Immigrant Shelter and Aid Society, organized in 1881, which has branches and agents all over the world, were letting a few of the most unsightly Asiatic Jews come to America, shunting most of those to Israel. Also, they have been stirring up anti-Semitic outbreaks in various African and Middle Eastern countries so as to make a Jews there migrate to Israel. Not only do they need them in Israel to fight and to work, but if my guess is correct, 
they expect to get most of these low-class Jews wiped out. Actually, we are not just guessing except as to details, for Mr. Higger himself told us that the Zionists would build a race of tall, handsome men, eliminating all the Jews who were not tall and handsome, who had physical defects and so on. And it must disturb the high-class Jew to think that, eventually, his line must blend with the Negroid and Mongoloid Jews, the Yemenite sheepherders, often the butt of snide jokes in the Jewish press, and the other dregs of their tribe. In summary, there are three plausible reasons why the Zionists keep on pressuring their people to come out of Iron Curtain countries. One, they must get most of them out so that few will remain to be slaughtered by bombs. Two, they need them to work and four, cannon fodder in Israel and three, in Israel, the master strategists could maneuver to get them, the short and the unhandsome ones, wiped out. How soon the Zionists will complete the operation of getting most of the Jews out of the communist countries and thus will be ready for a day, we can only guess. They have been getting them out ever since the end of the Second World War, and almost every issue of the many Jewish weeklies in America tells of some more Jews coming to America or going to Israel from the communist country. Most of these reports picture the Jews as suffering under the communist regime, but some reports in the Jewish papers, which Gentiles rarely read, flatly deny that Jews behind the Iron Curtain are discriminated against. Los Angeles B'nai B'rith Messenger of July 26, 1957, quoted Dr. Nathan Goldman, president of the World Zionist Organization, as telling the Zionist Action Committee in Jerusalem, quote, The time has come to place the question of Soviet Jewry before the bar of public opinion. Mr. Goldman revealed that he had met during the past year with a number of Russian representatives and believes that there are good prospects for the demand through contacts in the communist governments of Eastern Europe for the right of Soviet Jews to migrate to Israel. He cautioned, however, that Jewish demands must not be transformed into a crusade against the USSR, end quote. We may be sure the communist governments are not doing anything to hurt the Jews, for if they were, we would hear a mighty triad against the anti-Semites. So the time has not yet come. The strange revolutions which broke out in Poland and Hungary in the summer and fall of 1956, it now appears, were at first incited by the communists themselves, in parentheses, quite possibly in collusion with the Zionists, and parentheses, for two or more purposes. One, the communists all over the world were off on a new party line designed to appear to divorce the satellite governments and the Communist Party in America and other Western countries from Moscow domination. In a little sham battle, which actually lasted only a few hours in Poland, the virtually unarmed Polish mobs, quote, whipped, end quote, the mighty Red Army, unseating the Moscow communist dictator and replacing him with a Polish communist, who oddly enough had just been released from prison by the Moscow government and allowed to go to Poland in time for the uprising. This whitewash, Polish, quote, revolution, end quote, worked for the liberal internationalists, 
Eisenhower and Dulles administration immediately began asking Congress for aid to the new independent Polish government. And the Supreme Court has come dangerously close to saying that the Communist Party in America no longer takes orders from Moscow and therefore is just another American political party. Two, the Zionists wanted to get nearly all, not quite all it seems, of the Jews out of Poland, mostly to Israel. So there appeared some anti-Semitic acts in the revolt and then there's an asterisk a dispatch from Jerusalem on page 1 of the Los Angeles B'nai B'rith Messenger, August 16, 1957, quoted, Two American Jewish scholars at the International Ideological Conference now taking place, end quote, as saying that, quote, any strategy of trying to frighten American Jews into settling in Israel was futile, end quote. They did not, however, condemn the scare technique as a failure in getting Jews to Israel from Iron Curtain and Mediterranean countries. Back to the text. However, the Polish revolt did not quite come off as regards scaring the Jews out of Poland. The Hungarian revolt did better because after the first few days, genuine anti-communist citizens rose up and were joined by a stream of deserting soldiers from the Hungarian and also the Soviet Red Armies some bringing their tanks and ammunition. The Hungarian revolt came off at the same time as the invasion of Egypt by Israel, France and Britain, and it seems possible that the Zionists expected the invasion to ignite the world war. Or perhaps they were not ready for the world war, but decided to get most of the Jews out of Hungary in case the war unexpectedly became general. The Toronto Globe and Mail of January 3, 1957 ran a long and revealing article on the evacuation of the Jews from Hungary. It was written by correspondent James Center from London, and later I phoned Mr. Center in Canada to clarify certain details. The article reported, quote, A high-ranking Canadian official slipped across the Austro-Hungarian border recently as part of a dramatic story of complacency, fear, and international intrigue. The purpose of the trip was to persuade 150,000 Jews to leave Hungary before it was too late. Sworn to secrecy, the Canadian waited seven days before turning the details of the trip over to me, end quote. The Canadian official met secretly at, quote, one of Vienna's largest homes where he found 15 prominent leaders of international Jewry assembled. They were an alarmed group from Israel, Switzerland, and elsewhere. For several weeks, they had been sitting on the border with unlimited funds at their disposal in Vienna and Zurich. Yet despite all their efforts, they had been unable to persuade more than 3,000 Jews to leave Hungary. Since the end of the Second World War, they had done well in business, in the civil service, and in government. Some had become well-to-do landowners. They felt they were secure, end quote. When it became apparent that the Jewish leaders of Hungary, with the delegation at night inside Hungary, could not be induced to get their people out of the country, the head of the delegation ordered them to do so. Quote, it has been decided, the Canadian quoted him as saying, these are orders from the top. And there's an asterisk, you must come out. Orders from the top confirms charges made by patriotic citizens, generation after generation that the Jews still maintain a secret tribal government 
with power over Jewish citizens of Gentile nations. He never mentions the Kahala, and I, and I think that's uh, what he's referring to, but maybe he didn't know when he wrote this. A quick recapitulation of the above report reveals much. The Hungarian Jews had found a promised land. They were doing well under communism. They felt so secure they would pay no attention to the pleas of their brethren until they were finally given outright orders, quote, from the top, end quote. In view of their favorable situation and their sense of protection by the communist apparatus, and in view of later reports from numerous sources, we know that it was not the communists that they were supposed to escape from. It was the revolting Hungarian and Russian soldiers and Hungarian citizens who had risen above the original whitewash revolution of October, quickly converting into a genuine anti-communist revolution, and all anti-communist revolutions behind the Iron Curtain are in some measure anti-Semitic because the enslaved people have to overthrow a secret police rule, which still is highly Jewish in complexion. Hungary had been under the Jewish communist regime of Bela Kuhn, or Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, during the short-lived Red Dictatorship right after the First World War. And Rakosa, R-A-K-O-S, Rakosi, R-A-K-O-S-I, the strongman of Hungarian communism, after the Second World War, was a Jewish monster of the crudest character. And there's an asterisk. According to the liberal writer John Gunther, who knew him and interviewed him, Rakowski is of Jewish origin and the family's name was Rosencrantz. Gunther and Rakowski was, quote, one of the half-dozen most important and international communists in the world today. Back to the text. If the Zionists expected to launch Armageddon by their 1956 invasion of Egypt with France and Britain, they miscalculated. Eisenhower, who had positively crawled before the Jewish bankers and political organizational leaders since he was lieutenant colonel under MacArthur in the Philippines, where he began courting the Jewish political machine by going to the B'nai B'rith Club in Manila and playing bridge with its members, now suddenly stood still. He was supposed to back Israel, of course. Some unseen force held him back. The only sizable force other than Zionists since the death of Robert Taft, known to influence his policies, is the Standard Oil Chase National Bank crowd. Dulles is a relative of the Rockefellers and a member of this crowd, and Eisenhower made Nelson Rockefeller one of his aides and advisors. Well, Eisenhower was a Jew. Rockefeller is a Jew. Didn't know about Dulles, though, but if he's related to Rockefeller, he was a Jew, too. The Rockefellers are in many communist fronts and work with the Jewish bankers in almost all international financial and political exploits and plots, but they apparently do not want to give up the fabulous oil fields of the Middle East to the Jewish expansionists. When the president would not draw in against Egypt and the Soviet Union did not come in, Israel, France, and Britain were left out in a limb, one which promised no foreign aid billions, and the invasion was called off. In scrutinizing the Zionist timetable, it would be interesting to know whether or not they intended the Egyptian invasion to start the final war. In any case, they kept their agents in the Austrian border of Hungary, which border, by the way, the communists left particularly unguarded for weeks, herding the Jews across and resettling them. 
Many they flew to America in U.S. Air Force planes, rushed to them by President Eisenhower, though by no legal authority. Others they shipped to Israel. Estimates of the number of Jews who have come out of Hungary since October vary from 17,000 to as high as 100,000. They kept coming out all winter, and the Jewish papers and some correspondents kept saying there was to be another revolt in Hungary in the spring, followed by another one in Poland, and certain incidents hinted that a third would follow in Romania, where there were, by Jewish newspaper estimates, a few years ago as many as 400,000 Jews. According to the Utopian Plan, the communist forces will have to be destroyed after they have served their purpose. They who have made communism so monstrous evidently expect to be our St. George. And the more monstrous the dragon, the more glory to the Zionist knight in armor who cuts off its many heads, saving mankind or such as remains of mankind. It would surely seem that America is to be on the righteous side since our policies, like Britain's, support Zionism but it is not conclusive that the USSR is to remain in the camp of the, quote, unrighteous. The world planners are opportunists, and now they are building a red China into a mighty war machine with know-how and equipment largely from the Soviet Union. It is my guess that the master strategists plan to hurl red China against both the USA and the USSR, thus once more forcing us into a wartime marriage with a communist country. In a desperate atomic struggle, no man would dare criticize our ally, Soviet communism or Jewish Zionism or our government heads. We would quickly emerge into a coalition communist-type dictatorship. But to be on the side of the righteous, we must embrace the Zionist God with law and justice administered from Jerusalem. The atomic war with anti-God China might well take care of all who oppose such developments. The world would be socialist. There would be no further debate about socialism or communism, but only mention of the pro-Jewish and anti-Jewish camps, the righteous versus the unrighteous exclamation point. The role of any particular nation, as of now, must necessarily be a matter of conjecture on our part, but the above plan would satisfy the utopian requirements. If the Zionists did not get some of the Israelis slaughtered in the war and did not maneuver to have Israel sacked and perhaps burned or atomized, they would lose the trump card, which has drawn so many crocodile tears from us stupid Anglo-Saxons and got so many of our sons killed on Jewish-mapped battlefields. Israel will have to take part and on the side of the West, or rather, fighting beside those Western nations who are to be duped and used. Finally, Mr. Higger himself says Israel is to participate, quote, Israel and the other righteous nations will combat the combined forces of the wicked, unrighteous nations, end quote. From Professor Higger's book, it seems that our own country and allies, no doubt Britain and France, are to be among the righteous. This is splendid news, the first news of victory, even before the war starts. But are we to be victorious? not in any sense that any of us or our children and grandchildren can profit by a victory, for it is Zion that is to conquer all, or such is the plan. Quote, 
assembled for an attack upon the righteous nations in Palestine near Jerusalem, the unrighteous will suffer a crushing defeat, and Zion will thenceforth remain the center of the kingdom of God. End quote. In the next world holocaust, there may well be no victor, not even Israel. Certainly, if they succeed, you and I, as defenders of American tradition and individual freedom, will be on the liquidation list. We need not even expose Zionist activities to get into the Jewish Black Book, asterisk. The Jewish Black Book Committee was listed as a communist front in the 1947 California Un-American Activities Committee report. Its national head was the late communist friend, Albert Einstein. The Black Book is apparently a list of Americans who dare to defend their country and its traditions. All we have to do is defend our race, our traditions, and our freedom. Mr. Higger made that clear, and the Zionists attack, vilify, and ridicule all Americans who become prominent in the fight for Americanism. How will they and their, quote, righteous agents, the liberals, manage to suppress or liquidate such opponents in this country? Many ways may be quickly developed under the hysteria of war, an atomic war. The only force capable of coping with such an emergency is the local police in their own cities. They are familiar with their respective cities and local environs and terrain and season for handling people under excitement. The only way on earth to have efficient civil defense, quote-unquote, in a war emergency is to have the responsibility where it already rests under the American form of government with the local city governments and the people themselves. Let the police chief handpick, train, equip, and organize a citizen's auxiliary, and you will have genuine civil defense. The police chief and mayor naturally will work out plans for cooperating with county law enforcement authorities, the county and adjoining counties, and all will work with the armed forces to save their own lives and children. James Forrestal, the Patriot Secretary of Defense, worked out exactly such a plan and in the fall of 1948 asked police chiefs and sheriffs throughout the country to organize. And, and I think this is the same Forrestal that uh, was thrown out of a window, said uh, he committed suicide. <laughs> I think that's him. Forrestal was also, at that time, trying to keep Truman from building up the State of Israel in the strategic and oil-laden Middle East. The Marxist propaganda machine, headed by the Jewish smear agent Walter Winchell and the Anti-Defamation League mouthpiece Drew Pearson, went into action against Forrestal. Rarely in our history has such a furious and lying attack been centered on any public official. By December 1948, I predicted in an article, as any observer could have predicted, that Forrestal would soon be driven out of office. He was out by March and, as the reader doubtless recalls, was hounded to near insanity uh, and either jumped out or was thrown out the window of the Naval Hospital where he had been held virtually incommunicado, denied even the right to see a priest. A sure sign that the inventors of the federal as opposed to local civil defense machine were not concerned with providing a genuine civil defense to save lives, families, and cities and to preserve the local order of things. After reviewing the steady progress the Jewish nationalists have made for centuries in revolution after revolution and the appalling power they have today as they near the climax of their amazing 2,500-year struggle for domination, it might sound ridiculous to say flatly, no, that they can't win. Any answer is obviously no more than an opinion or a blind faith. My answer is, and always has been, no, 
I just do not believe the selfish, scheming, bloody, utterly immoral Zionist cult can destroy the whole world and bring the smoking remnants under its control. I believe they have already gone too far. They are challenged in the communist countries by the people, and now they are challenged even in the stupid, kindly, tolerant, and timid West, where the Zionist curtain of secrecy cannot be kept down much longer. goes on to talk more about Europe, and I'm going to uh, skip over that. And I think we know where we stand. I think you all know where we stand. Uh, I don't think I need to finish the rest of this book. We've got the important parts of it. So I don't want to bore you to tears with my reading. (laughs) So I'm going to uh, call this show uh, done. And uh, I thank you all for joining me this evening. So remember, it's all about the 14 words. We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. And that was a long read. I bid you adieu. Long live Tay-Sachs and Sickle Cell and Free Matt Hale and Rahoa. I am a young sailor My story is sad Though once I was carefree And a brave sailor lad I courted a lassie By night and by day Ah, but now she has left me And sailed far away Oh, if I was a blackbird, could whistle and sing, I'd follow the vessel my true love sails in. And in the top rigging, I would there build my nest, and I'd flutter my wings or her lily. Or if I was a scholar and could handle the pen, one secret love letter to my true love I'd send, and I'd tell of my sorrow, my grief and my pen. Since she's gone and left me in yon flowery land Oh, if I was a blackbird, could whistle and sing I'd follow the vessel, my true love sails in And in the top rigging, I would there build my nest And I'd flutter my wings or her lily white breast I sailed o'er the ocean 
my fortune to seek Though I missed her caress And her kiss on my cheek I returned and I told her My love was still warm But she turned away lightly And great was her scorn Oh, if I was a blackbird Could whistle and sing I'd follow the battle My true love sails in And in the top rigging I would there build my nest And I'd flutter my wings Or her Oh 